0: photography is a powerful medium. That power is often in the ability of a particular photograph which we know the difference between a picture and a movie between a photo and a video is that a picture is a snapshot still image and yet a photograph can have the power to capture the energy, the movement, the emotion, the significance not just of one little tiny millisecond of time but some photos have the ability and the power to capture an entire event, an entire generation, an entire person's life. There are some photographs that have become iconic, especially in American culture. I think about the 1945 photo of the four soldiers raising the American flag over Iwo Jima. Who cannot see that picture? You can't walk away unchanged. It's forever ingrained in your mind. Not because it was a a great significant event in the battle, but because it came to encapsulate so much about the struggle in the Pacific Ocean in World War II. Or I think about the 1936 photo by Dorothea Lang of the migrant mother who's staring off into a bleak future with two of her children on her shoulder. Or the 1989 photo in Beijing of the lone Chinese protester standing before the communist tanks coming down in Tiananmen Square. Perhaps the most iconic photo in all of sports history, you can picture it, is of the 23-year-old Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston, who is sprawled on the boxing ring, and he's doing his iconic pose yelling down at his opponent. The reason these photos become iconic is not necessarily just because they're uh, beautiful, or because they're particularly clear. In fact, the photo of the Chinese protester is very grainy, in fact. A photo becomes iconic because people recognize that that little snapshot captures a lot more than a split second's worth of light rays. An iconic photo is able to encapsulate an entire persona, an era, We think about that photo of Muhammad Ali. That's not just about one particular fight. That is a picture of a man, of his entire life, of who he stood for and who he was is all encapsulated in that one photo. Or the raising of the flag in World War II. That event at Iwo Jima accomplished nothing militarily, but it was everything when it comes to summing up the feeling of patriotism during World War II. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to 2 Samuel chapter 2. The thing is about the Bible is that it often provides these kind of snapshots. An iconic little story that is meant to sum up an entire period in the history of God's people. Or a little account that really helps to encapsulate and characterize someone in the Bible, their entire persona. And we have one of those today. We were told last week at the beginning of chapter 2 that David at this point is reigning in sort of a a limbo kingdom where only one tribe has decided to follow after him and for seven and a half years he's ruling in Hebron while a rival king tries to take over the whole rest of the kingdom, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And we're told in chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. But the only account that we get of this, what's called a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, is this little minor skirmish that's recounted here in the second half of chapter 2. And I say minor because David isn't even present. So it must not be that important of a battle. To add to it, we're told at the end that on David's side, only 20 men died. And not to belittle the value of men's lives, but on the scale of biblical wars go, 20 men dead is a pretty small casualty number. So this is a minor skirmish. And it causes us to ask the question, well, then why is this snapshot... Included in Second Samuel, it's not that important of a story. It wasn't a huge victory. The battle continued to wage on. The war, the war lasted for a long time after this. There were many battles to choose from. Why is this the one that's put here in the story? Well, this brief battle serves as a snapshot. It sort of gives us a commentary on that full seven and a half year period. The war between the house of Saul and of David. What does it look like when God's people turn their swords on one another? What is the end of a family feud? What happens when brotherly love is absent? And what we find in this little minor skirmish is all the things that you would expect. The pettiness. The futility, the disunity, the foolishness, the self-defeating nature, the destruction that comes when brother raises sword against brother. So if you found Second Samuel chapter two, let's stand together as we heed the compassionate warning and exhortation of the spirit, beginning in verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin, and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, "'Is it you, Asahel?' And he answered, "'It is I.' Abner said to him, "'Turn aside to your right hand "'or to your left, and seize one of the young men "'and take his spoil.' But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me! Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which leads lies before Gehah on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, Surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan and marched the whole morning. They came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin three hundred and sixty of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. You may be seated. I've titled this sermon, nobody wins when the family feuds if you were to sum up the point of this story that is it nobody wins when the family feuds and as i was reading the story this week and trying to see how how can we sum up what's going on here my attention continually was drawn to verse 26 Because in verse 26, in the midst of this chaos of brother killing brother and chasing one another and this feuding amongst the family, we have this cry, these three questions that break through the chaos and bring a little bit of clarity to what's taking place. I want to read to you again verse 26. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? This morning, I want us to see verse 26 as sort of the frame around this snapshot that helps us to interpret and understand what is going on in this story. There are questions that are meant to help us to see the Of what is going on here. As we look at the chaos. And how did this happen. These three questions. Ring in our minds. And I want us to spend a few minutes. Allowing these three questions. Shall the sword devour forever. Do you not know the end will be bitter. And how long will it be. Before you tell your brothers to turn from their pursuit. Of their brothers. These three questions to frame the way. That we understand this story. And interpret this snapshot. So first. This story illustrates for us, number one, the sword devours. The sword devours. So the story begins. It tells us that Saul, or that the, the son of Saul, Ishbosheth's men, gather under Abner, and they're on one side of the pool. And then on another mountain across from them are David's men under the leadership of Joab and Abner the general of Ishbosheth's army calls out to Joab the general of David's army and he says hey let's have some fun you take your 12 best guys and I'll take my 12 best guys we'll let them get together and they can fight and we'll have some entertainment this afternoon and they assemble essentially what is a gladiator competition between some young men from Saul from the son of Saul's army and 12 men from David's army. And verse 12 tells us each caught his opponent by the head, thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. All 24 young men's lives snuffed out like that. And for what? They fell down together. The sword devours. Sir Walter Scott lampoons this idolatry of the sword, this violence for violence's sake by staging a medieval fair at the town of Ashby. I do not kid you. In the town of Ashby in his novel Ivanhoe, where British knights put their chivalrous valor and their mighty battle skills on display in a pretend battle for the entertainment of the crowd. And he sums up the festivities in this way. This ended the memorable field of Ashby de la Zouche one of the most gallantly contested tournaments of that age, for although only four knights, including one who was smothered by the heat of his armor, had died upon the field, yet upwards of 30 were desperately wounded, four or five of whom never recovered. Several more were disabled for life, and those who escaped best carried marks of the conflict to the grave with them. Hence, it is always mentioned in the old records as the, quote, gentle and joyous passage of arms of Ashby. You can hear the dry British wit there. He is poking fun at this violence for violence's sake. The fact that being good at wounding others is something to be proud of. The sword devours. When men and women take up arms against one another, there will be casualties. And when we're talking about a civil war, the only casualties possible... The only people who are going to be left dead on the field or wounded are going to be your brothers and your sisters. We read in verse 16 about these brothers, these young men, they fell together. Asahel chases Abner to his own destruction. Israelite destroys one another. The sword devours I read about Joab and Abner, and I just think to myself, what kind of people create this kind of environment where violence is celebrated and where the sword reigns? People like Joab and Abner, this kind of cavalier approach to war where men's lives are just easily expendable. And we read about these young men and their fighting for the entertainment of their generals, and it really should turn our stomachs to read the people of God seeing violence in this way. Well, why do they put these men up to this? Why are they even entertained by this? It's because they have no regard for the personhood of these young men. 24 men dead on the field. And for what? Entertainment. Sport. For fun. The word that Abner uses is why don't we have a little bit of fun let these men play for us playing with young men's lives in a culture where the sword devours we the people of God have to be those who declare life is precious every life not just some lives not just the lives of the people who look like me or who are a certain age, or who can contribute things to society. The lives of unborn babies matter and should not be disposed like we're playing some kind of a game. Where abortion is just an oopsie or a laughing matter. Where we say the lives even of convicted criminals matter, that they shouldn't be disposed or abandoned To corruption simply because they broke the law. Where the lives of abuse victims matter. Where churches never minimize or cover up spousal abuse, child abuse, pastoral abuse that could be going on in their midst. Where the lives of black people here in Newberry matter and the members of an all-white church are not afraid to say it where they will not speak down to people of a different color, where they will not call them by the N-word or treat them as second-class citizens, but where they esteem every single life as precious and valuable to God. The sword devours because unregenerate men, Paul says, are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Think about yourself for a moment what are the reasons why you are tempted to take up your sword against somebody else? Why do we fight with our wives? Why do you fight with your brothers, your sisters, your co-workers, church members? It's because in our hearts we are acting as selfish people. We are saying about ourselves, my life, is more valuable than your life. I deserve to have this promotion. I deserve to have this toy. I deserve to have this whatever. My opinion matters more than yours because my life is most valuable. And selfishness and selfish ambition leads to rivalry and strife. We don't wage war for no reason. It's always for ourselves. You see, humanity has not progressed past Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. We read it this morning. The only difference between this story and what we read this morning between Cain and Abel is that now it's just Cain and Cain. Brother killing brother is what we have here in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And this is how Satan intends to destroy mankind by turning brother's sword against his own brother. He wants to see mankind kill itself. But the good news, friends, is this is how Jesus Christ came to save mankind. He came into a world, brother turning sword against brother, and he said, Brothers, turn your sword against me. I will absorb the hatred. I will absorb the animosity, the strife, the maliciousness, the murder in your hearts poured out on me. And what is more, he absorbed all the wrath of God against us, mankind, who was destroying men and women, our own brothers and sisters, made in the image of God. Jesus absorbed all that wrath for us as well. In a self-centered world, Jesus conquers death through self-sacrifice by letting the sword devour himself. And we have been set free to do the same. Why on earth would we idolize the sword? The sword devours. I have their second question this morning in verse 26 is this. Do you not know that the end will be bitter? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? This is the second point. The end is bitter. The end of this road of brotherly strife of sword turned against one another, it can only end in bitterness. So we have this story within a story of this fleet-footed young man named Asahel, and he decides there is one person he wants to kill, and it's Abner. He won't turn to the right or the left. He is going to chase that man down until he gets to fight him and cut his throat. And uh, Abner is running, and they're fleeing, and he realizes there's, a, there's one person chasing after him no matter where he turns, and he says, Asahel, is that you? Asahel says, you better believe it. And he says, why don't you kill that guy? Kill that guy. Fight him. Don't fight. I don't want to fight you. And he's, he says, no, this is between you and me. He says, listen, I do not want to have to kill you. Your brother Joab is going to be super mad at me. He won't be deterred. And finally, feeling like he has no other option, he stops short with his spear, and Asahel actually impales himself on the butt end of Abner's spear. And verse 23 says that everyone in the battle, as they came to that point, stopped. And stood still. Things got real there. And everyone realized for a brief moment, what on earth are we doing Joab's brother is now dead, not just nameless men, but a man, an important man, Joab's brother. And now Joab and Abishai are out for blood, and they're chasing Abner. And Abner is fleeing for his life, and as he's running away, he realizes the truth. The end of all of this is bitterness. There's only one end that's going to follow me and find me. In the novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, young, young Huck learns about family feuds from another young man by the name of Buck, who is, his family's engaged in a violent feud um, between the Grangerfords and the Shepherdsons, and Huck doesn't really understand what's going on. He's, he asks, what's a feud? Buck responds, why? Where was you raised? Don't you know what a feud is? Never heard of it before, tell me about it. Well, says Buck, a feud is this way: a man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him, then the other brothers on both sides goes for one another, then the cousins chip in, and by and by, everybody's killed off, and there ain't no more feud. But it's kind of slow, and it takes a long time. I feel like that kind of describes exactly what family feuding is like in the church. This is the point. This is the bitter end that is waiting for the people of God if they continue down this road. A man kills his brother, his brother kills him, and so on and so forth until there are no more brothers left. And this is what Satan wants. He wants us all dead. He wants brother to kill brother to kill brother to kill brother until all of mankind is consumed in bloodshed and misery and death reigns forevermore. That is what he wants. I want to point you back to a phrase that has stuck in my mind ever since I read it this week. In verse 16, it says, so they fell down together. It's the truth. We have to realize that if my brother falls, if my sister falls, I fall too. They fell down together together. We rise and we fall together as the family of God. And for those of us who do not realize that truth soon enough, the end is bitter. If you think that feuding, that strife strife amongst your family, amongst the family of God, with your brothers and sisters, if you think that the end of all of that is going to be a good thing, you're in self-denial. Even Abner, the one who started all of this, came to the startling realization, I don't like where this is headed. This Thursday is October 31st, called Halloween by the heathens among us, called Reformation Day by the real Christians, right? Uh, The reason why is because October 31st, 1517 is the day Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany, okay? So that's why it's called Reformation Day. It was the spark that led eventually to the Reformation and the split of Protestants from the Catholic Church. Now, what was Luther's intentions in nailing those 95 theses on the door of the church? Was it to destroy the Catholic Church? Was it to tear down his brothers and sisters and begin a big family feud? No. From the start, Martin Luther was convinced in his mind if he could just show his brothers and sisters their fault if he could just demonstrate from God's word the truth and call his brothers and sisters back, he could bring about a reformation of the people of God. One of the most heartbreaking moments for Martin Luther was standing before the Diet of Worms and realizing it's not happening. He was clinging to hope that the family wouldn't be split. Friends, nobody wins when the family of God feuds. When we fight in our homes, when we fight in our marriages, when we fight in our churches, we have already lost the battle. Even worse, when we find ourselves cheering the downfall of other pastors, cheering the downfall of other denominations, cheering the downfall of other churches... Brothers and sisters, we need to look at the carnage on the battlefield and realize we fall together. Why on earth would we ever want a gospel-proclaiming church to fall into disgrace or disunity or feuding? How many relationships have died because Christians didn't know the difference between primary and secondary matters? Because Christians wouldn't allow love to cover over a multitude of sins. Because Christians insisted on winning no matter the cost. All right, you've proved you're right. And in the process, you have burned everything else to the ground. What now? The end of all of this strife will be bitter. There is a category for brothers and sisters who are in error and yet are still brothers and sisters. Do you know why? You know how I know that? Because I'm one of them. And so are you. We are sinful to the core. And that's why there's such a thing as sanctification. And in the midst of that, we have to be forgiving with one another. How many battles like the one we read here in 2 Samuel chapter 2 could have been avoided if we just extended to our brothers and sisters the kind of forgiveness we are so ready to extend to ourselves every day. The end of brotherly and sisterly strife is bitter. It is futile and fatal. When we fight in our churches, when we fight in our relationships, when we fight in our homes, at the time Satan convinces us all we can think about is, I've got to win this thing. That's all that matters. Winning the fight, proving that I am right, that you are wrong, getting what's mine. And when the dust settles, maybe you did win the argument. Maybe you got the thing that you wanted. But it doesn't matter. The church is dead. The marriage is dead. The home is dead. Brothers and sisters, the end will be bitter. What then? Do we run from conflict? Do we hide from conflict? Do we ignore it and act like it's not happening? Well, the truth of the matter, whether we like what's going on in chapter 2 or not, is we need the kingdom to be united. Because a kingdom is either united or it is no kingdom at all. Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 3, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against that itself, that house will not be able to stand. Brotherly strife is a clear indicator that a rival king has entered the kingdom. We can't just ignore and pretend like there isn't a rival king marching around, gathering troops behind him in the kingdom. Ishbosheth is on a rival throne, and it is not a unified kingdom until all of God's people are under the leadership and submitting and bowing the knee to King David. There is a conflict in this story, but we have to recognize as Christians the difference between conflict and and strife. Brothers and sisters can have a conflict. They can have a conflict of opinions. They can have a conflict over biblical interpretations or of Christian convictions. And those conflicts can either lead to greater unity and love and forgiveness under the lordship of Jesus Christ, or those conflicts can lead to disunity and strife, depending on how we enter them. We have to figure out how to dethrone those false kings in our lives without also killing our brothers and their sisters. Joabs have to learn how to take the high road, not enter in to the battle. Abners have to learn to surrender to the true king. Because there will be consequences from what happens on that battlefield. There are gonna be consequences we're gonna see for Joab. There are gonna be consequences For Abner, as the story progresses, this is something we have to acknowledge. Yes, we can forgive one another. Yes, we can allow love to cover over a multitude of sins. However, we can't just go sinning against one another intentionally, brazenly, and think there will not be any casualties or wounds that will last long after that battle is over. Battles like these leave scars. They leave permanent injuries. Battles have casualties. And to pretend otherwise is to be foolish. Is it a good thing that Abner came to a realization that maybe this whole thing I started was a bad idea and maybe we should quit now? Yes. Would it have been better for Abner to have never begun the battle in the first place? You bet. Sin has consequences, A pastor can be forgiven for committing adultery with one of his congregants, but you better believe things will never go back to the way that they were. An abusive husband can be forgiven for what he's done to his wife and children, but the truth of the matter is that marriage may be over. Sin has consequences. The end is bitter. When sword is raised against brother, whether it's physically, emotionally, verbally, when we wound others, we cannot pretend that forgiveness somehow magically erases all the wounds from the battle. This is the truth. The end is bitter. Why would you want to go down that road in the first place? What fruit were you getting in that time from the things of which you are now ashamed, Paul says? Don't you know that the end of those things is death? Don't go down that road in the first place. So, what are we to do? We know that the sword devours, we see that the end is bitter. What can we do in its place? We have Abner's third and final question in verse 26 How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? This is the solution. Turn and pursue brotherly love. Turn and pursue brotherly love. Rather than going headlong, plunging with your sword drawn into something you know which will end in death, into strife. Why don't you turn and pursue after brotherly love? The turning point in this story for Joab is when it finally becomes... Personal, because all the casualties of the battle at this point are just nameless men, but then his own brother gets slain. And all of a sudden, this battle comes home. It's personal. When we start to see one another as actual brothers and sisters, it's amazing how brotherly strife, the threat of family feuds, the threat of church suicide, it magically vanishes When we actually start to treat one another as blood relatives. I don't want to fight with that person. That's my brother. That's my sister. I don't want to wound him. I don't want to wound her. The way that Joab feels about the death of Asahel is the way he ought to feel about the deaths of every single man on the battlefield. Because the truth of the matter is, they're all his brothers. They're all Israelites. We have to begin to see and treat and pray for one another like we actually are true brothers and sisters. Instead of fighting with one another, we need to turn and fight for brotherly love. Dear Father, please help me to have the heart of my brother Jesus who loves these people like his brothers and sisters. Help me to lay down my life for them the way Jesus has. Brotherly love means treating others as more significant than yourselves. Means considering the needs of others as more important than your own. It means giving instead of taking. It means being willing to lose if it means all my brothers and sisters get to win. Selfishness results in brotherly strife, while selflessness is the result of brotherly love. Sharing what you have, extending forgiveness, it means building one another up seeking to encourage and prosper your brothers and sisters day by day through the word, through your presence on Sunday morning, through your presence in their lives throughout the week. It means fighting for one another rather than fighting against one another. We have to realize as we finish this morning that brotherly love is only possible in a united kingdom, united under one a kingdom divided will never see brotherly love reign. This battle is over at the end of chapter 2, but the war will, wage, will rage on for a long time. As long as there are two kings, there will always be civil war among the people of God. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve the Lord Jesus and the prince of the power of this world because the world is at enmity. With God. You may end the battle for today, you may find a truce for today, but as long as you're serving another master, another king, there will always be a battle tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Until you are willing to surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ, until you're willing to be united under one king, the son of David, will you turn? From your hatred of your brother, your selfish ambition, and will you give yourself to the Lord Jesus? Will you find the end of bitterness and death and eternal life in the King who allowed the spear to be turned on himself for you? Even as he sits on his throne, do you know that he holds out the wounds which he received for the forgiveness of your sins, wounds which you and I gave to him, our own brother? Wounds which now plead on our behalf for forgiveness. If we will come and bow at his feet and serve him as our king, will you turn this morning and pursue brotherly love? I wonder if we were to take a snapshot of your life, what would that photo reveal? If we were to capture a glimpse of your home, would we find brotherly love? Your marriage, your workplace. If we were to take a photograph, what would we find? By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your supreme example that you are uniting a kingdom underneath you of selfless brothers and sisters because you, our brother, have laid down your life for us. Please, Lord Jesus, we pray, turn our hearts. Turn our hearts. Turn us to love one another in the way you have loved us. We pray this all trusting in Jesus' name.